0: Good morning, church. My name is Brett. I'm pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, but especially our guests. Welcome. Glad to have you in the house. Well, we're going to begin a series on the Ten Commandments this week, and it's not going to be ten weeks. (laughs) We're going to take a couple of them, put them together, and um, maybe four or five weeks we'll get them all done. But these are important for us. With respect to our history as being grafted in the, the root of who Israel is, then their patriarchs became ours when we gave our hearts to Christ, and we need to understand what was God trying to do in the beginning, when he founded a people, when he was trying to institute order in what it looked like for a nation, uh, and how they needed to, to devote themselves corporately to him, not just individually, but corporately. So turn with me over to the book of Exodus. The title of the message today is First Things First. First Things First. And welcome to all of those who are live streaming. Glad to see you today. Exodus chapter 20, we're going to look at verses 1 through 6. Exodus 20, verses 1 through 6. It says, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven, above, or on the earth, beneath, or in the waters under the earth. And you shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Verse 6, but showing loving kindness to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Lord, help as we study. Two things I want to concentrate on. Recognizing who God is. And two, removing all would-be competitors. Recognizing who God is and removing all would-be competitors. Context is that the people of Israel have just come out of Egypt. They're about three or four months wandering in the wilderness trying to figure out what the new existence looks like now that they are free. They had been in Egypt, at least familially, generationally, for the better part of 400 years. All they knew was slavery. All their parents knew was slavery. All their parents' parents knew was slavery. Now they were free. And they were free unusually. Most nations that had acquired their freedom from another did so with the edge of the sword. The point of the spear, not the Israelites. God brought them out miraculously. No nation had been delivered like this in the history of man, nor has any been since. Miracles. Water turning to blood. The sun not shining for three days. Now, a a solar eclipse is not unusual, but three days? Solar eclipses last maybe 45 minutes and maybe three days and at the behest at the command of a man by the way Pharaoh uh, the sun's not going to shine for the next three just FYI (laughs) plagues at Moses word pestilence animals dying locusts coming gnats frogs boils it was amazing Tough on the Egyptians, but amazing for the Israelites. And as amazing as the miracles were just on face value, what made them even more amazing, if you will. You're Egyptians, your Israelites. They got boils, you didn't. There was an aisle. On one side of the street, the sun shone. On the other, it didn't. The Israelites weren't in the darkness. The Egyptians were, yet they all lived in the same land. Locusts came on those trees 20 feet away, Mm. but they didn't like these over here. Pestilence killed all those animals on this side of the fence, not that side. As as miraculous as the miracles were, what was even more miraculous is that none of the judgments came on the Israelite side. And so the Egyptians were just sitting there saying, how come their cattle ain't sick? Why didn't their water turn to blood? What, is, what, 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 what? So the Israelites are saying, wow. Now, they represent us, by the way, the Israelites. See, Moses came and these miracles started happening, and they were happy. I mean, the first people that experienced some of the miraculous signs were the Israelites. Meaning when God sent Moses, and, and Moses had questioned about, well, when I go, who shall I say sends me? I'm the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Say, I am sent sent me to them. And and the first people he had to convince were his own people, not Pharaoh. Pharaoh was second. He had to convince the elders of Israel that he was for real. So he came, and one of the signs was the, the staff turning into a serpent and hand becoming leprous and then putting back in his bosom, becoming clean. So the Israelites would know that God was with him. And so they said, okay, you went it. great, great, go. He goes to Pharaoh and then does the the one with the water turning the blood. And then then Pharaoh says, oh, I know what your problem is. Y'all lazy. You want to go because you're lazy. You don't like to work. So now you're going to have to build bricks without straw. We would provide the straw for you normally, but we're not going to do that anymore. So you have to go out and get it yourselves. At that command, the Israelites didn't turn on Pharaoh. They turned on Moses. You you brought all this on us. We used to be happy. Boy, we can rewrite history, can't we? We used to be happy. We were good old slaves, enjoying our bondage. At least we didn't have to go out and search for our own straw. But now look at what you've done. We, I, I, we can't reduce our quota of bricks. We used to be able to sleep, but now we got to go out and get the straw while we used to sleep. And now we're tired because we... Moses, if you call this help, go. May God judge you. The process of getting free is never easy. And it might get a little bit more difficult for you before it gets good. It might. But don't blame the people around you who are helping you try to get free and don't blame God. I mean, when you tell that spouse of yours what you've been doing on the side, it's going to get bad for a minute. It's going to get bad for a minute. When you have to confess to your employer that you've been embezzling, it's going to get bad for a minute. It's going to get bad. You're going to have to repent and do some restitution. I mean, it's going to be... But if you trust God, you're going to be free. Maybe in five years, but you're going to be free. (laughs) I'm just saying. (laughs) (laughs) But, But... But these people have been delivered. They got out. And it's important that you understand to whom God is speaking because he's not talking to the Amorites here. He's not talking to the Hittites. He's talking to a people that knew something about what deliverance looked like, that understood something about the miraculous, that understood something had happened that had never happened in the history of man for a people. And this is why God says in the beginning, I am the Lord your God, not just the Lord God. I'm yours. I, I, I've chosen to, of all the peoples on the earth, I've chosen to identify myself with you. And every day, before you get upset about how your day is going to be, or mad about what happened yesterday, you ought to remember this, that God has chosen to identify himself with you. He is the Lord, your God. That's how much he cares about you. There are very few people did I choose to give my name? Eight others. That's it. Because I'm not quite sure if I gave it to somebody, I don't know what they do with it. They might just go out and mess it up. They say, oh, you, you're that fuller. You, you, you're fuller, aren't you? Mm-hmm. I said, wait, 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 wait. That name is good. Well, not if he's, he's not representing it well. God has chosen to identify with you in such a way that now people think about him when they think about you. What do they think about? And he is not so prudish as to take it back. He's willing to allow himself to be be besmirched by your bad witness without becoming insecure and saying, I distance myself from you because you're messing up my reputation. He still hangs with you. He is amazing. I am the Lord, your God. Now, he gives these commands to the Israelites, and he is much more strong than he would be to the Amorites or the Hittites, because the Amorites and the Hittites, they haven't seen what God has done. We're going to get to this part about judgment in a minute, where he says, I'm a jealous God. Visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children down to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Oh, we don't like that passage. That makes us uncomfortable. But please, as we talk about what God does with respect to judgment, please remember that whenever he comes to judge, and indeed he does from time to time, generally his standard operating procedure is not to judge permanently. Because if that's the case, if he ever does that, it's over. You don't wake up tomorrow you're done so when he comes to judge with with respect to our personal lives it's always with discipline not with the kind of punishment from which we never recover that's called hell he doesn't do that often and when he does do it it's generally the people who have decided to go there anyway they've rejected his purposes They haven't treated mankind well. They had an opportunity to do the right thing and chose wrong and they chose to go that way and they were living wrong long. Mm -hmm. So no man is without excuse. They had a long time to be able to say, Lord, I want to give my life to you. I choose to change. I'm not going to be this way anymore. And they rejected his message for 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years. And then somehow we think in our stupid Short-sighted myopia. That God is at fault for that? Mm-hmm. We apply neglect to Him. How could a loving God send people to hell? I'm not asking that question. I'm asking, how can a righteous God allow anybody to get into heaven? How? How can a holy, pure, right God allow any of us sinners, criminals against God, allow any of us to get in except by His mercy? When we think about judgment, we automatically think, oh, that's too hard. God's too tough. He is so kind. That's right. That's right. I am so grateful. My parents judged me with a spoon, a belt, a shoe, anything close. They judged me regularly, lit up my bottle and let me know what was right and what was wrong. Not only did they judge me by way of word, but their actions said much more than their words ever did. I'm convinced that there are nerve endings that go straight to the head from the bottom. They have a way of making you smarter more than words. Whenever God judges, it's a recipe that includes mercy. Or else we would not survive. Are you listening to me? You've got to hear everything I say today through that lens. And there is no more accurate lens with respect to understanding. His judgment. His discipline. His punishment that comes into our life here. No more accurate judgment. No more accurate lens than that today. First he says. You people who have come out. I'm your God. Don't. Have any other gods before me? I'm yours. I'm it. I defeated all the gods of the Egyptians. I pulled you out of the house of slavery. There is no other god but me. They are would-be gods. They're gods with little G's, not capital G's. I am God. I am God of all. I am all there is. And I am yours. I've chosen to identify myself with you and to love you. Beyond all the nations of the earth. You are not my only, but you are my first. And I chose to pull you out and to create a people for my name who could then bring about my will in the earth to such an extent that I can bring about redemption through my Messiah who I'm going to send, my son, so that all of mankind can come to the knowledge of the truth. You are the beginning of my redemptive purposes for all the planet, for all of time. Don't get another God because they are not gods. Don't trade me in. Don't begin to think somehow that there's a better version. Don't do it. Now, there, there are other versions out there that people are aligning themselves to. And, and we Westerners generally don't gravitate toward Krishna or other versions of God that are really not God. We don't generally do that. Some do. But, but, but let me tell you the God that we do tend to go to. to, to. Us. God, I, I got this. I, I really, I'm good. I'm good. You, I don't, I, I'll come back later. There's some things I need you to attend to, but I want you to know I got this. Don't worry about my career thing. I've got it all planned. I know exactly where I ought to be, when I ought to be there. If you could just kind of endorse my plan, that would be great. Just co-sign it for me, and we'll go, we'll, we'll go far together, oh, God. Don't, don't mess with my money. Don't do that, oh Lord. My, my, my money, oh Lord, is just, I, I've got a whole idea about how I want to, if you'll just go ahead and give me like much, you, you'll help me in my stock progress. If, if, if they'll rise a little bit, co-sign my plan for my financial gain. We, we think we have better ideas than God. And we tend to put ourselves in front of him. In many ways. And l- lest you don't know, you really, you really don't make a very good God. <coughs> you, you, you don't. Like, do you know what's going to happen tomorrow? Yeah, yeah, you're, God does. Have, have you ever come to an intersection in your life where you didn't know which way to go? because you didn't know which direction was going to benefit you the most, God never has to question that. He knows exactly what to do. Have you ever taken the wrong turn and said, oops? Never in the history of God has he ever said, oops. (laughs) You don't make a very good God because you don't know much at all. You don't even know exactly whether you're doing all right now. You, you think you're doing as best you can, but you're not quite sure whether that decision you made yesterday is going to be in your best interest tomorrow. We question everything. And we barely can get our own lives right. When people come to us asking for, for wisdom and understanding, we say, um, why don't you go to Pastor Brad? <laughs> We don't know much. None of us do. And there are people that come to me, I say, listen, you have to go to a professional. I can't, I can't help you in that area. There are other people who are much more qualified to counsel you long term in that area. I can help you with what you need to do now, but if you need long, you got I'm to. Not, I'm not everybody's answer to everything. I can't be. I'm not God. God is everybody's answer to everything all the time. My point is you don't make a good God so don't be one. Don't pretend to be one. For me, everybody for me, God is not a crutch for me. He's not. He's a heart and lung machine. Uh I can't live, move, or have my being without him. I need him every day of my life. There is nothing good on the inside of Brett that can be of any good to anybody else unless he puts it on the inside of me. I can't give you a cogent biblical thought without him inspiring me to do so. I can't speak right unless he forms my mouth to say the words. I can't love right unless he deposits his love and first loves me. I can't do anything good unless he does it in me first. I can't do anything good unless he does it in me first not just informs me first. Everything about my pulpit and my ministry is about building it on the basis of integrity. Is there anything that could ever be confused with perfection about Brett? No. I'm not that. But if I don't live it, I can't talk about it very well. I gotta live it in order for it to come out with any degree of power. Otherwise, it's just information to you. I don't ever want you to trust me. I don't ever want you to trust in me. Don't ever, replace me with, uh, don't ever replace God with me. That would be a bad decision on your part. But I do want you to be able to have the confidence every day that when you walk in this house, your pastor's been living it all week. I want you to have that confidence. And if I have not lived it as well as I should have this week, on Saturday, I repented. (laughs) No other gods. Zero. Trust him with everything. He's deserving of that. He's carried you. He carried you even when you didn't know you were being carried. That's the first commandment. Secondly, he says, make sure you you make no graven images, no idols. Don't do it. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, we need to define that term jealousy. Because most weddings that I attend or either preside in have a reading of 1 Corinthians, where 1 Corinthians 13 says, love is not proud, it's not arrogant, it doesn't seek for its own good, it's not jealous. And then we see God here saying, I'm a jealous God. Well, the English translation is not, is not helping us as much as it could. And this is why Greek is important, or Hebrew in the Old Testament, is important for you to at least know a little bit about so you can get a clearer picture. Um, you, you don't need to take Greek or Hebrew in order to understand your Bible. You don't. You get the same picture with both, i.e., you're going to get the same storyline, English or Hebrew or Greek, same storyline. But when you, when you learn Hebrew and Greek, it's like you get it in HD. You see greater definition. Same picture, same storyline. You just go, oh, oh, that's real clear for me now. The better word to use for God, for, for love is not jealous there, is Envious. Now, there's a difference between envy and jealousy. They're often used as synonyms, but they are pretty, pretty different, at least in our, our, our distinction and definition. Jealousy is desiring that which is your own. Envy is desiring that which is somebody else's. I'm jealous for my, my relationship with my wife every day. Right. Rightly so. In Hollywood, it's almost incredulous when somebody is maybe flirting with another person, though that person is married, or somebody outside the relationship is trying to seduce somebody else, the spouse will say to their spouse, as they see some kind of emotional reaction, oh, are you jealous? As if, what an immature response. (laughs) You ain't seen maturity until you've seen Brett jealous. You... Somebody come between our relationship, I do not care if they are 6'6 and 280. I'm going to stand toe to toe to if I get my butt beat, at least they're going to know they were in a fight. I'm probably not going to use a whole lot in the name of Jesus either. I'm going to use my fists. And I'll be right to do so. I fight for this relationship because she's mine and I'm hers. That's right. God's jealous for you like that. He stands against the bully of this world called the enemy. And he fights for you every day. Why? Because you are his. He fights for you. Sent his son to fight for you. He defeated the devil for you because he's jealous for you. Envy, that's bad. That's desiring something that somebody else is. It's analogous to covetousness, which is the last command that we'll get to in a few weeks. That's bad. Love is not covetous. Because anytime you want something that somebody else is, you no longer love them. You're trying to figure out how to get what they have and deprive them of what they have. What God has given them, you want it, you want it from them in order to somehow fulfill something on the inside of you that only God can do anyway. And when you get it, you're not going to be happy. Amen. Envy is one of those hollow promises. It, 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 it gives you, it says, I'll give you the world and never delivers. God is jealous and it is a good thing. <clears throat> Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And he's, he's talking about all of this within the context of, of, of idolatry. And idolatry is producing things that, that we can replace God with. Uh, In the Old Testament statues, they'd make it out of wood or metal and they'd bow down to it and light votive candles or talk to it or sacrifice to it or pray to it. And again, in Western society, we don't do much of that today. Um, But but, but nonetheless, we we craft idols. Our careers. Oh, career. If I give you 80 80 hours a week, I pray that you give me a promotion. Oh, career. We don't say those words, but we got that attitude sometimes. Car. On Saturday, if I give four hours a day to you, Car, and I use all the armor all I can possibly find, (laughs) to sheen you up when I drive down the street I want people to look at me a certain way will you help produce that image for me old car now I, I wash my car I keep it clean but I do not care what you think about me and my car I don't care I got, I got a bunch of cars because I got a bunch of people and I'm not driving my, my teenagers around they're going to drive their own selves and, and, and I've, I've, got, I've got a 2000 Honda and, and a 2002 a uh, 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 Honda Accord, and then a, a 2002 Acura, and I'll drive those things to Harris Teeter, and people will see me, Pastor. <laughs> pastor, do you need some? You need a raise, Pastor? <laughs> I said, Nope. I don't care. I don't care it is something to get me where I need to go that's all it is now somebody recently blessed me in the church there's an Acura dealership down the street they said pastor we want you to drive right they said we want to help you with a car and I mean they blessed me so I'm driving an Acura now I'm all good but let me tell you I do not care what you think whether it's an Acura or a 16 year old car my identity is not wrapped up in that thing I don't need that to produce anything about what you need to believe about me. Money. There's a lot of stuff we give our attention to before we do God. Money, if you will will help me get get to where I need to be with this amount of savings and that amount of investment, boy, I will give myself to you by watching the stock market regularly. (laughs) I'll just make sure that I invest and, and day trade and, ooh, money, help me. And we trust in a lot of other stuff other than him. That is not to say you should never wash your car or stewardship or be a good steward over your resources. You just don't trust in them. Now, when we talk about idolatry, these are these are... Basically, course corrections in your spiritual development, what I'm talking about here. Everybody has to deal with the idea of making sure your attention is focused on Christ in every area of your life. And so we are always navigating around whether I've been too emphatic on this point or that point. Lord, Sunday is a moment when I can refocus. Help Pastor Brett, help me to get right on point. And so we all have to do that. This is not talking about that. This is talking about somebody, and I've laid out the history of where that from which Israel came because you have to understand the context in which Jesus or the Father is speaking this to his people. These are the folks who have experienced miracles unlike any that have appeared in the history of man. They may not know God as well as they should, but they know him better than any other group of people that has ever been. And he's telling them, I'm your God. If you depart from me after what you see." After what you've tasted. After that manna that I provided for you every morning. They were nomadic people, so they had no opportunity to do any agriculture. They couldn't plant anything. And so God just rained down this stuff called manna. And manna means, what is it? Because they didn't know what it was. Every morning, before the sun came up, right at dawn, this stuff would just appear on the ground. And it was seed-like. He so said it was like coriander seed. And they'd get as much as they needed for their family every day for 40 years every day. It was not place-specific. It was people-specific. So wherever they went, it followed them. They'd go out and they'd just pick it up as much for their family as they needed. They'd grind it up and make bread every day. Every day. And then They complained about God's provision of manna. Don't ever complain about your manna. Amen. I do not care how boring it gets. I don't, don't ever complain about God's provision for you. Don't get so starry-eyed about what you need tomorrow that you forget about how he's provided today. Don't you complain about your manna. They complained about their manna. It says they grumbled in Numbers 11. Because they said this manna is going to make us sick. (laughs) We're tired of this manna. Every day, manna, 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 (laughs) manna, manna. Oh, you're complaining about God's miraculous provision? Are you kidding me? (laughs) Yeah, I said, okay. I'm going to send you some quail. For a whole month, quail came in. Now, I don't know if you know it. Quail is small birds. They're as big as your hand. And they came in enough to to provide for 2 million people. And they came in. They didn't have to shoot arrows in the sky and shoot them down. They came in at 3 feet, waist high. And so you were just there and they'd fly in every day at 4.30. And you step out of your tent and say, whoop, 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 whoop. And you gather them as they were just flying by. You'd put out a net and go to the grocery store. That'd be grocery store that day. In the the meat section. And you take 20 of them and you cook them up every day for a month. These are the people to whom God is speaking. And he says, if you choose to leave me after what I've done for you, if you choose to walk away completely, we're not talking about a temporary backslide. If you choose to walk away completely from me after what I have done for you, it's going to affect your kids. It's going to affect your kids. Know that. Just like if you stay with me, it will affect your kids. I'll bless them. I not only bless your kids, I'll bless them to a thousand generations. You are here today not just because somebody shared the gospel with you, not just because you had good parentage. You are here today because somebody prayed for you. Yeah. Somebody in your lineage a long time ago, four or five generations ago, said, God, help! They cried out to him. They loved them. They didn't know you'd be here. But God knew. God thinks generationally. And if you choose to depart from him, he says, if you hate me, after all I've done for you, I'm going to visit the iniquity of you on your children. Now, iniquity is that which, which means Sin. It's a synonym, but it also means the bent that is on the inside of the soul to make you do that sin. It's not just the act, but it's the tendency of soul to go the wrong way. Now, what I'm about to say, you have to reflect back to what I said 25 minutes ago regarding what judgment looks like. That when God comes to judge, he always has a recipe of mercy mixed in. Or else we wouldn't make it to the next moment. He says, I'm coming to visit. The iniquity of the fathers on the children down to the third and fourth generation of those who hated me. There There is a reality of how our DNA is inescapable when it comes to the influence on our children or what we have inherited from our parents. We can try to navigate around it. And with the miraculous power of God, sometimes we can be delivered from it. But it's inescapable without addressing it properly we are a composition of our decision and our dna in the environment in which we grew up you can't escape who your parents were the more the older i get the more i sound like my dad and my children the older they get people say you're just like your father I got two boys down at our school of campus ministry in Nashville, Tennessee, Garrison, and Garrison. They're doing great down there. I talk to people, they're doing that, And they all say, boy, Brett, there's so much like you. Fortunately, they consider that a compliment. <laughs> 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 they aren't trying to hide from me. We've got a great relationship. All my kids, we've got a great relationship. But you want to make sure that you pass out as much good as you possibly can. You don't want to be impe- an impediment to the next generation or succeeding generations. You don't want to. But if you do wrong, wrong can follow. Wrong can follow. Great book. Pick up the podcast or listen to this later on our downloads. Do Fathers Matter by a man named Paul Rayburn. Do Fathers Matter. It's a guy who was a journalist. <clears throat> and he, he knows there's, there's been a lot. He's not a believer. He's just a guy. But there's been a lot of research done on the impact that mothers have on the health of their children in utero. The genetics, the health of the egg, as well as how they care for their bodies while they are in the gestation period, nine months. But he hadn't found much research as to whether a father could actually impact the health of his child through his contribution. Meaning his part in fertilizing the egg. And so he went to find out who out there had done some research. And there were some people who had, but none of them had really talked to one another. So there wasn't a composite of, of wealth, of information that anybody could generate and say this is what happens when fathers don't do right or don't, aren't very healthy when they begin to produce children. He put it all together. Fabulous book. He didn't know what he was doing, but he was confirming everything the Bible has said from the beginning. And that things can be passed down that are beyond environment. They tested some mice in a laboratory, <clears throat> male mice, and they, um, they piped in a, a gas that was a smell that was fairly pleasant, didn't harm the mice, didn't make them react. But then they associated a shock every time they, they brought in this smell, and they created a Pavlovian response so that now they could remove the shock, the electric shock, and then just put in the smell, and the mice went crazy. They started jumping around because they realized they associated the smell with the pain. They then mated those mice, and those mice produced offspring. Once those offspring were able to get around a little bit, they put them in a cage, piped in the same smell. The mice went crazy. A thing called epigenetics. It's not a mutation of gene. They've now found that it's possible to, to find spots in the genome that can turn on and off on and off this is one of the reasons why i do not drink alcohol other than the fact that probably in america it is not seen to be proper for most pastors much less christians to drink alcohol on a regular basis people would question the legitimacy of my faith secondly there are there are things that happen in terms of Mind when you drink alcohol, they put me in a compromising position. I have to, if I have to make decisions for the benefit of somebody else, in a split, split moment, and so I don't ever want to be off. Thirdly, my dad was an alcoholic. Cynthia and I have seen some of our friends, and just TV people seem to enjoy alcohol a lot. They get happy, and she and I have looked at one another and said, maybe we ought to start drinking. <laughs> It might make us a little happier. I mean, we, we, we are needy, but we thought we've never experienced that. I've never had, I, I don't drink. I had a sip of champagne when I was uh, married at, at our honeymoon. That's, that's all I've ever done, sip. And we didn't, I don't even like, I didn't even like the taste. So I just don't drink. So maybe we ought to try some. It might make us a little happy while we're enjoying a TV show or something. Just, <laughs> I don't even know how to do it. You know what's really bad? In Reston, they were creating this, this restaurant called the American Tap Room. When they put the sign up, I thought it was a dance hall. I'm serious. That's how dumb I am about alcohol. But I think if I, if I imbibe too much, I might just turn something on. Because it was turned on to my dad. And he was drinking and smoking when he had me. And so I say, no, it's not worth it to me to turn that gene on. It's just not worth it. Things get passed down. And when there is a person who decides to depart from everything that is right and good, And literally hate God. It affects the kids. Not just environmentally. Genetically. Now, God says I'm going to visit this iniquity. Both the action and the bent of soul. But it doesn't mean that he's going to judge them ultimately. Because his judgment is always mixed with his mercy. So what is the best way for him to let the generations who succeed, the guy who hated God and departed from him what is the best way for God to address the, in, the inaccuracies in his kid's life except to say that's not right I'm coming to bring consequences to your life so that you don't continue to go the wrong way that is love if he allows them just to continue without any attention that's hate yeah, that's if you notice somebody is intentionally going over a cliff and you don't shout cliff out do you care God brings circumstances. Now, he does first with word. He tries to warn people, bridge out, bridge out, bridge out. Don't go that way. And people keep going through the signs. And then he brings winds to try to divert you away and let you know it's not going the right way. And you keep going. And then he'll push boulders down and it crashes your car. And you know what you get mad at? You get mad at the boulder in God. God, look, my car's wrecked now. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is, isn't it? Do you know you would have died? Do you know you would have died? The bridge was out. I've tried to stop you for the last 50 miles. Bridge out, bridge out. And you went right through the signs. And you're mad that the circumstance wrecked your car? Going to cost you $5,000 to fix it? Are you kidding me? You ought to thank me. His judgment is mixed with his mercy all the time. It's the unusual thing when it's not. When he winds it up and says... His imaginary line, wherever that is, I'm done. You can't go any farther. It's over. That, that, came, so, that came as a result of so many attempts to try to get him right. And the beauty is this. He says he's committed to doing this for four generations. He, he's not committed to doing it just for one. He said, if it takes four generations to get you right, I'm going to go get your kids. Your great, great, great grandkids, I'm going to get them. I'm going to show them how much I love them by giving them judgment in their life so that they can turn. Mama, wait a minute. I don't talk to the dead, but this is kind of, how do I say it? I'm grateful that my mother disciplined me. Thank thank, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Lastly, he says, if you do right, if you do right, thousands will benefit if you do right thousands of benefit now this should not be lost that there is a greater benefit to doing right than judgment for doing wrong hmm. That's good. <laughs> good. Wow. we always want to ascribe god as being unfair how could a loving god allow this to happen how does a god determine that i need to be blessed When I have been so messed up, where my heart tends to go the other direction. What is forgotten in all of this is that people always say man is good in getting better. If so, why do we need commands? If man is really good in getting better, why do we need laws? What do laws do except tell people what not to do? If you're so good, why do you have to be told what not to do? Can't you just figure it out? Mankind is not good in getting better. We, and we need so much help that we need more laws all the time. That's why we have a legislature. And they produce more laws to try to curb people's poor behavior. Are you kidding me? We are a mess. That God allows for anything good I do with respect to my undistracted worship to benefit my great-degree grandkids is amazing. And I worship him for it. Because I know how messed up I am and I know what my tendencies would be without him. Lord, that you would allow my life to impact my great, 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 great grandchildren. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm not deserving, but there will be people who are called Fuller in the year 2250 that are still benefiting from my life. If I stay right, who's going to benefit from yours? Let's pray.